Hello and welcome to another episode of The Coder Career. My name is Cameron Blackwood. I am the co-founder of The Coder Career. I am a former technical recruiter turned software engineer, and I'm joined today by Alex. Alex, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Hey, Cameron. How's it going, man? Yes, uh, my name is Alex. I'm a developer, and I'm also the host of the Scrimba podcast, where I've been uh, very lucky to have yourself on as a guest in the past. You're very flattering. Thank you. It was a it was a real pleasure going on the uh, Scrimba podcast, and I definitely recommend people check out the entire back catalogue. Um, but my episode as well, um, if you want to know my story, then uh, I think you got some you got some good anecdotes out of me, uh, and also it's cut down a fair so. bit, so there's less of my waffling as well, which is always nice. <laughs> No, we're very ruthless about cutting it down from like a, I think maybe we spoke for 50, 60 minutes, which is typical, but we're super ruthless about cutting it down to 30-ish minutes if we can, uh, just because people are busy and in an age of TikTok, I don't know about everybody else, but my, my attention span is uh, weaning, so I'm <laughs> making the podcast that I would like to listen to. Yeah, 100%. My, my attention span's in the gutter ever since I downloaded that app, for sure. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they allow 10-minute videos now, so maybe it's slowly ticking back up again. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, it's Gen Z's uh, attention span is going to be multiplied now, um, which is uh, which is very exciting. And um, we, we've name-dropped Scrimber a couple of times now. Um, obviously, some people will know you from there anyway, but for people who don't know, Scrimber is not just a podcast. Um, do, you want, no. do you want to tell everyone a bit about what Scrimber is and, and the value they can get from it? Um, I'd be really happy just to give the the high level overview of Scrimba, mm -hmm. and if we want to talk uh, more about it later, that'd be cool as well. But essentially, it's a learning platform where anybody interested in building front end websites using HTML, JavaScript, uh, CSS, and later on uh, things like React, uh, you can come with very little knowledge or experience, and our career path helps you get to a point where you don't just feel confident writing apps without tutorials, but you may, may very well be in a position to go on to get a job as well. Um, we're quite cautious at Scrimber about making like over-the-top claims like some boot camps do around you're guaranteed to get a job and all this, but we we strongly believe that if somebody motivated comes to Scrimber and takes advantage of everything we have to offer, uh, they can go on to get hired and actually on the podcast, although I interview industry experts and people who have been around uh, in the field for a while, I'm also speaking with some of our students who got jobs as developers and they sort of break down how they use Scrimber but also all the other things they had to do to kind of stand out without a degree, crack the coding interview and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it, it's really cool. And I, I was saying to you offline, actually, and I did promise I'd repeat it uh, on the show that ah. it is exactly the kind of product that I wish had existed um, when I first learned to code because I was doing so much independently. Uh, it's very easy to get kind of stuck. Um, and uh, Scrimba looks like it's the real kind of ideal uh, midpoint between being entirely independent and then going to something so so structured like a boot camp. So it, it, it seems like a really cool thing to check out. And uh, yeah, the links are in the description, but we'll, well, as you say, we'll go into it a little bit more later on. But for now, we'll talk about you. Um, you had quite an interesting journey to tech, because if I recall correctly, your career changer as, as well, right? What, what's the story there? Um, not, not exactly. I actually... Um, more or less started as a developer and I and I still am a developer. Um, but I suppose the unique part about my story is that I am pretty much completely self-taught and didn't go to university or anything like that. Okay, cool. So how, how did you pick up uh, technology and coding in general? It's quite fun actually, because you're taking me back to like my teenage years where I was like just dabbling with computers and at the same time, pretty much 
failing at school and like getting in trouble and not doing anything particularly productive. I would say like my biggest skill at the time was like quick scoping on Call of Duty. Like I wasn't really, I wasn't like particularly skilled at anything because I just wasn't getting on with school and, and the teachers kind of thought I wouldn't amount to anything and I was kind of stupid and all these things. Um, but I like computers and games and I thought maybe I'll try graphic design and eventually actually a friend of mine was modding a game using Java and I was kind of curious. I played on their custom server and I wondered how I could do something similar and he sent me this zip file full of files and you have to understand at the time I was using things like Photoshop and Adobe Premiere, I was like, how do you open these files? Like, surely you need this really complex piece of enterprise looking software. And he's like, no, just open it in Notepad. Like it's already on your computer. <laughs> and I see all these brackets and the word Boolean and I'm thinking what on earth is happening? And it was just enough, right, for me to like change the content within a string and edit it a little bit. And that's more or less how I, how I got started. Um, but it was really just a hobby and I really wasn't very good at coding. I could just change things inside the code. Um, and that's when I actually stumbled upon, I think it's Stanford, who at the time released a, a, a YouTube series of their lectures, a course called Programming Methodology with this just incredible teacher. And in the first modules, he's breaking down programming and computing, what it means, uh, what Booleans are. I was like, oh, that's what a Boolean does. And therefore, how conditional logic and if statements work. And for the first time, I was like really resonating with a teacher. And it occurred to me that, you know, at school, you really are kind of, given what you get, right? Like you don't pick your teachers, even when you go to university, right? You, you can't always be sure exactly what you're getting from an educational point of view. And I think the pandemic's proved that many times over with many students' expectations being shattered when they're actually at home watching lectures, but paying eight, 10K a year for the privilege. Um, and, and this kind of started my self-taught journey where I could go on and watch YouTube videos, read books and all these things. And somewhere along the way, I realized that this could be an incredible career as well, because at the very least, I could go on to get a job that paid, you know, in the top percentile in the UK. I felt good that maybe I would earn more money than some of the teachers who were like putting me down. But I also saw all the other opportunities to um, achieve freedom and autonomy. Uh, financial freedom, because obviously as a developer, you're very well compensated. And I don't think your income is specifically tied to your job. You can always create a course on the side. You can build an app and put it on the Play Store. And with regards to autonomy and freedom, you know, obviously in tech today, we have the privilege to work remote. Even back then, I sort of loved the idea that you could combine your passion for tech with virtually anything else, right? So say you're really passionate about football, you could go and work at an app like OneFootball and combine your programming and Premier League knowledge. And on the other hand, if you're into like nonprofits or anything, uh, any social causes, you can go and use code to really make a significant difference. Um, and for all these reasons and more, I just fell in love with coding and the career. Um, of course, it wasn't a smooth journey. And a lot of what I do today is try and offer some of the uh, advice and guidance I wish I had back then without any structure or help from something like university. Yeah, I'd, similar story for me with the whole that whole piece of like, it wasn't smooth journey and I want to smooth it for other people, uh, which right. was the original motivation behind the code of career and still is a core part of our ideology for sure. And uh, I saw early on, um, you worked at, um, at Pusher, right? Who actually, I wouldn't have known this at the time, but I was admiring a lot of the work um, that you were probably contributing to because I always thought what they were doing for the dev ecosystem was absolutely awesome. I, I, I remember going to a few of their events around like 2017, 2018 and thinking no this is so cool. Uh, they were doing so much for the London tech scene. No, that's class, man. That's so cool to hear. I, I loved my time at Pusher. Um, it was truly a transformative experience for me because I grew up in the countryside in North Wales uh, in a village of like 8,000 people. 
And when Pusher took a chance on me, I got to move to a city with 8 million and unlock all the tech scene and all the rest of the amazing things that come uh, with living in London. But, but actually, the reason why I ended up working at Pusher, excuse me, is that I was making YouTube videos on my personal YouTube channel about things I was learning in coding. And to me, this was a great opportunity to sort of solidify what I was learning because I actually kind of like pattern recognition in that sense. I noticed a lot of my favorite programmers who were like a little bit older than me and doing the things I wanted to do, they were all kind of making YouTube videos. So I thought, okay, maybe it's a good idea. And that's how I kind of got started. And in the early days, by the way, it was kind of embarrassing because I had two monitors and I would like have a snippet of code on one monitor and I'd be recording a YouTube video on the other. And I would be like glancing at the other monitor, just like copying the code, but I didn't really understand it. Like I had this impression that to be a developer, you just had to like memorize everything. And like, that's mm. how it worked. I had no idea about the building blocks or the semantics or how to think like a programmer. And it's funny to see how far I've come in that respect. But what did happen actually is because I was forced to talk about the code and reply to YouTube comments and things, it served as a great educational tool. And as a side benefit, people started to watch the videos and I, I quite enjoyed the process of being creative and making videos. And Pusher actually discovered those videos basically. And they were like, hey, you know, how about you come to Pusher and like make some videos like that for us and teach coding and teach coding around our specific product. Um, so this was like a great shortcut I found to get them to notice me and take me seriously prove my knowledge right because a degree sort of certifies that you've gone through certain training and completed certain exams that can really assure an employer that you're a good bet to take but when you have no track record there's always going to be more risk there um, i kind of stumbled upon it actually but making youtube videos was a great way to show how i think about code uh, and my communication skills and things like that which helps sway things in my balance I absolutely love that because one, I think it's genius. And two, I'm so happy because if the scheduling remains as expected for the podcast episodes, last episode, uh, I interviewed Guillaume from Code with Guillaume. And I said okay. to him, what would you do if you could turn back time and you want to get your first developer job? And he said, I would create a YouTube channel and document my learning and talk about exactly what I want to do. I think that's a unique thing. And if I was interviewing a junior developer and I saw they were doing that, I would definitely want to hire them. So no that way. is... The exact example that Guillaume said, it just goes to show you did exactly the same thing. And it's just such a good way of differentiating yourself because, you know, we both had to look at a lot of junior CVs and someone that's been documenting their process like that, be it on YouTube, on Twitter, on, on Twitch, um, you know, there are so many different ways of doing it. It really just makes you stand out and it proves that you have a real passion for, for what you're doing. And um, it is necessary, really, to be honest, to have that passion if you're self-teaching or career changing or whatever, um, compared to the more conventional route of doing computer science. And yeah, um, that that's an awesome story. And you, you were doing like, were you doing dev relations there then as well then, basically? It was a kind of hybrid role. Like it was uh, a lot of development, like developing SDKs and things like that um, and demos. Um, but also one of the reasons that I really loved the sound of the role is because I got to travel and go to like conferences on Pusher's Dime and stay in hotels and <laughs> meet a bunch of developers. Yeah, it was sick. Such a good time. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds really, really cool. And uh, Dev Relations obviously sounds super interesting, I'm sure, to most listeners um, of this. If people are curious to um, break into it, what would you say people should do? And what does a typical day look like once you've got into it? Devel developer relations is an interesting one because in the industry, no one can seem to agree on what it means. And there's even like a bunch of different titles that could be interpreted the same way, uh, like developer relations, developer relations engineer, developer evangelist, developer advocate. Um, and, and it really can change a lot depending on the company. But I think if you're the kind of person who likes 
uh, presenting or teaching, and you also like coding, developer relations is a great way to sort of combine your skills and passion. And, and that's what I did. There is no typical day in the life for a DevRel because it does depend on the company. I know at some companies, for example, Netlify, the DevRel people are a core, very important part of their product because they are building a product that developers use. And the developer relations team, what they do is they work on the developer experience. They look at support tickets. They talk to customers. They try and understand what is your use case? How are you using the SDKs? How can we adapt them and the documentation and the examples to allow customers to fall into the pit of success rather than stumbling and struggling to adopt the technology and therefore eventually lead to serious revenue for the business? Um, in other teams, you know, sometimes developer relations means going around to conferences and improving the brand awareness of a brand new developer related product. So for example, you might be spending a lot of time traveling, preparing and giving talks, interfacing with developers on the ground, and sometimes doing that alongside a sales team who might join you at the conference. And you might be looking for great opportunities to partner with other businesses, or maybe a great opportunity for you to help a business and then them subscribe to your, to your product. So yes, very, very varied role. I think it's kind of underrated as a pathway into tech, especially if it's uh, conducive to your personality and the things you find interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. And so it could be a really cool path for someone that's maybe been a career changer and come from something like a sales background. You can really lean on the skills you've already learned from from that from that career to translate into, it's the perfect kind of middle ground really, isn't it? In a lot of 100%. ways. I like that. Yeah. And um we obviously changing topics slightly. We we talked about Scrimber and um, how how it works and like what it is essentially. And I think what I see it as a lot of the time, um, it, it's a cure almost for the uh, the tutorial hell cycle that people get stuck in the sure. hamster wheel. Um, and it, it it solves that issue for people that have been self teaching and are stuck doing the same same old same old day after day and feeling like they're plateauing. Imagine a world where Scrimber didn't exist, if you will, for a moment. Um, say when we were both learning to code, how would you advise people that are currently stuck in that spot in tutorial hell, as well as just applying for Scrimber? Uh, what else should they do? Oh man, I'm so I'm so glad you bring this up because tutorial hell sucks. Like it's something that a lot of new developers struggle with. And it's the kind of thing you stumble into and it's very muddy and confusing. Like you don't really know what's happening. But to define tutorial hell, it's essentially when you feel as though you're making progress on your coding journey, you're following tutorials, whether they're screencasts or dev2 posts, and you're building something, but you don't necessarily feel confident doing something similar without the crux of a tutorial. And that's that's super, super frustrating because you feel like you're just getting it, but, but you're not. Um, and, and really, in terms of avoiding it, I think it really comes down to, to taking your time and understanding the core concepts. I think as a new developer, it's very difficult to measure your progress, especially because we're talking about a path that happens over many, many, many months. It's a little bit like going to the gym and trying to get buff, for example. Like if you look in the mirror every day, you're not going to see any, any progress. And you might even be tempted to chase the things that are like vanity related, like moving more weight, even though that might not make you healthier and might make you more prone to injury. And what I'm getting at is that following tutorials seems productive. Like I get that because you're building something and it seems efficient because it's all coming to life quite quickly. Sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. Sometimes you have to take one step back to take two steps forward, right? And I think going back to the fundamentals of whatever it is you're learning, be that HTML and CSS, JavaScript maybe, 
nailing that and really thinking and learning how to think like a programmer, thinking logically, thinking about how software gets broken down and built up, I think you'll kind of put your head up one day and challenge yourself and feel a bit more ready to take that on. Um, but of course, you'll never just wake up and feel completely prepared. You also have to combine this, I think, with attempting to complete projects by yourself, maybe without the crux of the tutorial. Of course, if you're not ready at all to do that, then it's just a recipe for disappointment. I don't think you should on day five, day seven, even in the first couple of weeks, worry too much about this. If you're a couple of months into this and this is something you're struggling with, I think you really have to challenge yourself to build something independently. And I, and I do believe that with the help of tutorials and based on what you've learned already, you probably can do it. What I see a lot of developers do, and it sounds kind of counterintuitive, is they have such high ambitions. They're like, oh, I'm going to build this app. It's going to have a login system. It's going to be responsive. It's going to work on mobile really well. I'm going to think about security. It's going to connect to a database. And, and this is kind of problematic because, of course, within that huge ambitious project, you're going to run into the ceiling of your knowledge. And actually, more likely, you know, there's so much to learn as a developer, so many shiny new things. You might just get distracted before you finish the project. And then you end up in this other kind of unfortunate situation where you have like seven or eight half-finished projects that you can't actually demonstrate or show anybody. That doesn't feel great. So what I would suggest if you're struggling with tutorial hell, apart from going back to the fundamentals, is to, is to start small but dream big. Like if you have an ambition to build some kind of project, you know, reduce the scope. That's actually a skill programmers need, by the way, is to estimate and scope tasks appropriately. And if you're building, say, a login system, maybe just focus on the login form for now, right? Like uh, turning the text and the password field into a custom symbol, for example, that's very doable for a junior developer. Um, and then, of course, you can tackle the next parts later as you feel ready. But even if you perhaps get distracted or you feel you don't want to go down that path anymore, at least you have a really cool login form you can put on CodePen or, um, you know, JSBin and, and link to in your portfolio in lieu of something something more impressive, which I'm sure will come down the line as you go further down this path. Yeah, I think that's such a good point and something that maybe I really should have considered um, when I was learning to code. I think I would constantly uh, bite off more than I could chew, chase after like get the shiny new yeah. thing syndrome and uh, chase after something new. And you know, I probably I probably have honestly over forty like half finished projects in my private github repos uh like it, it's one of those things where and actually there's so many useful things in there that i could just as you say i could have pulled them out put them on copen um because i was getting too ambitious and i like what you said about um kind of planning things out more um before you get started as well because the added bonus there you can use that as evidence that you were you're capable of working in some kind of like ticketed system. So what you can do is you can create a Kanban board, use Notion, use Trello, left free. Uh, in fact, I don't think Trello is anymore. Notion's free. Um, so you can use something like Notion to uh, basically make a make. It's essentially a to do list if you're not familiar with Kanban sure. boards, um, and they can track what they're doing and even assign points to it or something like that, um, just to really show that. I know how to work in a scrum environment, which 99% of dev jobs these days seem to do. Uh, it's a really good way of just proving that you have yet another intangible compared to most people. Because at the end of the day, that's what the aim of the game is. Just, sh just show what extra thing you have. Um, I say intangible, a USP is a better word because it's very much tangible that you know how to work on a project. Got it. I, I think you're, you're kind of connecting the dots there in an interesting way because what we're like stumbling on is this idea of like, multiplying your efforts 
and, and say you're learning to code, by the way, I think it's tempting at the beginning to think that like to get a job as a developer, to be a successful developer, it's got everything to do with your development skills. But actually software is among the most collaborative industries uh, in, in, the, in the world. And a lot of this collaboration happens on GitHub. So if I was to, to take your idea as inspiration, you know, instead of using a to-do list, you could actually uh, make a GitHub issue for every uh, feature you want to add and then make a pull request or commit with that issue referenced with the hashtag and the issue number. And what you're doing is you're getting good at breaking down your tasks. You are then building a green wall on GitHub, which, you know, it's not the strongest signal to an employer, but it definitely recruiters feels like good. it though. <laughs> Recru yeah, non-technical recruiters, I think, will yeah. eat that up. And at the same time, it is a good, uh, it's a good like intrinsic motivator, like to be on a streak and all that good stuff. We could maybe talk about that afterwards. Um, but but you're also leaving a bit of like a learning trail as well. Like a degree again, sort of verifies that you've been through certain steps. I think when you have like a track record of all your projects and how you've approached, like everything's in the public now. They can see how you broke the task down. They can see that you delivered on that task. And and it's really handy because this is pretty much how every team works. Like with GitFlow or something similar, like the issue on GitHub describes the uh, the scope and the, the, the criteria to mark that issue as solved or complete. And then the pull request addresses that. Um, and so again, I wouldn't like worry I don't want to like overwhelm anybody and say, oh, you have to do GitHub and all this stuff. But we're just pointing out, I think, that there are opportunities to like combine your efforts and, and software is not just about code. It's about time management, managing and estimating scope and things like that. And this is a great habit to get into from the beginning. Yeah, ab absolutely. And if people are learning to code independently, how would you say someone should structure their day? If Because uh, I know quite a lot of people listen, have um, have quit their job or vastly reduced their hours to really concentrate on this. And I think that's a very bold and great step that people have done that. Um, how would you advise they structure their day? This is a really fun question because in the last few weeks, I've been making this kind of silly video on the Scrimba YouTube channel, which is like, uh, a day in the life of a learner developer, learn React with me. And it'll come out in the next few weeks or something. It's got a lot of like camera angles and it's a, it's a bit of a trick to edit. <laughs> Sounds really cool. But it's, it's, almost a, it's almost a joke. Like I'm, I'm talking over it like uh, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. Like it's really silly to be honest. <laughs> but, the, but the advice I hope is sound. And, and I'm talking about things like how, you know, if you're going to sit at the computer for eight hours in the day, you should definitely factor in some time to go outside and get some exercise. And I love the idea, by the way, of starting your day with a podcast like this one or the Scrimba podcast, because what I find, and, and by the way, to be very sincere, this is exactly how I approached learning to code. Like I would go out in the morning and I would listen to like JavaScript Jabber or a podcast like that. And by the time I was walking home, I'd start accelerating my pace because I was bored of listening to them. I was ready to write my own code. Like it had got me itching and you know, like a toy car, you wind up like it kind of had yeah. that effect on me, which was fun. Um, plus, of course, you need daylight and vitamin D and a little bit of exercise to to keep your health in order because uh, your health are these like tectonic plates everything else is built on. If that goes, then everything else goes, unfortunately. Um, but I also think what's very important as a new developer, whether you're doing it part-time or full-time, is being clear about your intention for the day. And one system I really like the idea of, and it's from a book called Daily Highlights. Um, I think the author worked at Google at some point, if that's relevant, but this core idea is very powerful. It's like, before your day starts, ask yourself, what do I want the highlight of my day to be? It doesn't strictly have to be a work thing, by the way, but when you're learning to code, it probably will be. And why this is 
why this is powerful and impactful, I think, is because it gives you a really clear goalpost for the day. And as you know, without a goal, you can't score. You can't feel good about your day and what you've accomplished. And I think you should try and tune the daily highlight that you can realistically accomplish with maybe like 60, 70% of your time, just allowing for a little bit more time in case you need it or you get distracted or something happens in life. Um, but in addition, I also love this idea of setting a stretch goal, which is something that like you would like to achieve if you can and you have the time, um, but you're not going to beat yourself up about if it, if it doesn't pan out. And this works really well for ambitious people because it allows you to feel good about your day if you, if you hit that daily highlight, but also leave a bit more room to go further if you feel like it's uh, something you have the headspace and the energy to do. Yeah. Uh, that that makes a lot of sense, and I think uh, as well. I, I my my weird tip here is I like to have a day plan, sometimes physically written out, or a week plan. Mm. Um, in fact, I would show it on camera, but because but one is like confidential work stuff in there, and two, I'd probably knock the mic off. Um, but I I have a um, I have a weekly planner, which is actually from my girlfriend bought it for me ages ago, um, and I only properly started using it um, a couple of months back, and you can basically fill out all of your goals for the week and like down to the day, like what you want to do. And I have basically, I track everything for my life on that. And it, I find it really helpful to do a bit of structure for my day. Like, especially now that I'm not really a, like a junior developer anymore. When you're a junior dev at work, you often basically just get told, Oh, it's okay. You do this, do this, do that. Now sure. I need to kind of think about, okay, how is this going to be designed? Like how much time am I going to allocate to this ticket, this ticket? Like, do I need to create a ticket for this issue? Like, Oh, I think I found a bug. Like I should probably write up a ticket for that. Uh, I should probably fix that myself before someone else notices especially if it's something I've written myself. Um, so I find that really helpful. And uh, as well, like a random one um, that I find quite helpful. If people use Mac, uh, there's a uh, app built in called Sticky Notes or Stickies. Um, oh, yeah. You can literally just jot them down and just stick them in the top left corner. So if there's something you've been putting off, um, then uh, yeah, it's, it's quite handy to just have a constant visual reminder. Usually for me though, it's about like canceling some subscription that I've forgotten to cancel. Not really about coding. <laughs> It's quite interesting you elect to do most of your planning on pen and paper in this digital world. Is there mm. a reason behind that? I don't really know. I So I, it's weird. I hate writing and it's not going to be obvious on camera, but I've got two pretty severely broken fingers in my in my writing hand uh, or, or on my right. Um, so it's, it's very odd because I haven't really written anything since school other than this. Um, and I think it just sticks in my head better. I, I've read some kind of study uh, when I was doing my A-levels um, um, for international listeners. So that's basically the exams you take when you leave high school. Um, and I I found that apparently if you write stuff down physically, you retain over double the information compared to either writing up digitally or just reading it. Uh, and oh, I don't yeah. know how much it was pseudoscience, but I found it really helpful uh, in my A-levels and it's just basically stuck around since then. Um, and I've noticed, like I even tracked it a few times when I was in university working on assignments where if I took handwritten notes, I'd do better. Whereas if I just took my laptop to the lecture and typed it up one, I would uh, not retain as much information. And two, I would boot up football manager and end up just playing that uh, through the lectures. So, um, you know, it was a bit of a one, two kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so interesting. And you know, I, you mentioned pseudoscience and like, I get, I get why you want to do that disclaimer, but, but who cares, right? Like, if you hear an idea and it sounds promising, do your own experiment. Like, does it work for you? 
And I think what you're doing here is highlighting how we're all a bit different and have different preferences and we're wired a bit differently. Um, this is why you listen to podcasts, right? Because it gives you a bunch of disparate ideas and you can take the ones that, that appeal to you, whether it's setting a daily highlight or, or, or doing hundreds of notes in a planner. Um, I also, by the way, this reminds me of a study I heard of recently uh, where apparently you, you retain information better if you uh, like read it on a bigger surface right mm -hmm. and the whole the whole study was kind of evaluating this idea that we spend so much time on our phones reading information does that does that help us remember it and it turns out that actually you are much more likely to read uh, to, to retain that information if you read it on like a larger display and and maybe even a book right it wasn't it, what the study should have done i think is introduce a difference between books and monitors because that's another question i ask myself like if i'm reading a coding book or something like that should i like read it on the computer where i can take notes and highlight it or, or maybe just having it analog with absolute focus would be would be better for my retention i feel like that's an experiment i need to do at some point <laughs> do, do you find coding books helpful because I find them quite hit and miss. There are some great ones. Uh, and in fact, actually, when Leanne had me on for the live stream with Scrimba, I talked about the illustrated Grocking's algorithms. Uh, that book's been great. But a lot of them I find quite nice. difficult to, to jive with. What, what about you? So when I was learning to code, and, and this kind of goes back into like um, our, our, our reason d'etre at the beginning to like show people the things we wish we knew kind of thing. Um, I, I had like a very completionist attitude towards coding books. Like I, I had no idea what roadmap I should follow. I didn't really know like what I should learn. So so my approach at the time was to like pick a big book and read it chapter, chapter, chapter till the end. And I felt amazing when I did it. And I don't regret it because it I did remember a lot of it by chance and I found it to be a very useful index. But but looking but that only worked once or twice. I kind of tried to follow that same uh, approach to learning again and it didn't really work out. I'd either get bored of the book or um I would find that the examples were just not relevant to what I'm working on at the moment. And therefore it was hard to retain that information unless I made a very deliberate effort, almost like before you cram for a test, you know, like it, that was the only way I could remember it. Um, so I think reading coding books cover to cover, maybe not the best shouts. I think using coding books as a reference and picking and chewing on the chapters that are relevant to the problem you have at hand, I think that's very, very productive. Um, I don't remember who coined it, but there is this idea about just-in-time learning, which is kind of funny in the programming world because we have like just-in-time compilation as well yeah. with uh, <laughs> runtimes and things. Um, but you know, don't don't read a book cover to cover when you're facing a problem. Uh, go and reference the relevant chapters, right? But of course, to 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 do that, you need to know what's out there, and you need like some kind of idea about where to go for information. Um, and and that's why as a programmer, you should never be like. Uh, a sort of library like you don't need to contain everything in your head you need to be more like an encyclopedia and sort of know where to go for the answers because as a developer like knowing where to find the answers is just as if not more important than than knowing them and i and i do think books are good for that medium and i'll just add that like not all coding books are like you know c-sharp 6.0 reference guide kind of thing like there are some really good books like clean code for example that you uh, you, you absolutely can sit down and chew on and read. And I think it'll take you on a bit of a, uh, saying that that book would take you on a journey, I think is a bit of an overstatement. But at the same time, like, because it's not really trying to 
ingrain specific concepts into your head so much as show you examples and build your worldview around software a little bit. That book aims to like convince you to write software in a different way. That can be really good to chew on. And then there are other books, by the way, like, I don't know if you've come across this one called The Phoenix Project, which is like an, an incredible book because it's actually a novel about a company whose software is failing and the hero that saves the day adopts agile methodologies <laughs> to, 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 to like be the hero of the book. And it, despite this sort of ridiculous premise, it's actually remarkable uh, what they've done and how they've done it. And, and so, yeah, I guess it's very, very comprehensive answer to your question probably um but but that's my general views on books yeah uh I, and i agree with what you said earlier about like just find what works for you like i mean that's just a general like nice life philosophy in general find what you enjoy and find what helps you like uh, giving an example i was talking with someone the other day about acupuncture and about how i would never ever ever want to do it but so many people find it so helpful personally i cannot uh sorry my uh <laughs> getting alerts coming through um I imagine it being awful having a little needle stuck in my head, but for some people, they, that's our idea of like relaxation and fair play, yeah. you know, um, different strokes for different folks, as they say. That's right. And, um, so I guess we've talked about the learning process. Now let's get to that point where it's time to celebrate perhaps as someone that's come through Scrimba successfully and they have some amazing skills and some amazing people skills. Um, they often find an issue. A lot of these entry level jobs actually, require two to three years experience or because really what they're trying to do they're trying to get a mid-level developer on the cheap um and uh, they're going to call it like an entry-level thing um so how do you how do you one find a job when you've got no experience and two why do all these companies come out and say oh you actually need two years experience for this entry-level job how is it not a complete oxymoron it's absolutely perplexing isn't it like how does it make any sense that you need like industry experience to do a job which is meant to help you enter as an entry level into into the industry like it's it's completely it's completely perplexing to be honest it didn't always used to be that way like if you go back a few years five ten years or whatever entry level really did mean entry level i think you know you could get in there with just a bit of a bit of uh like passion and potential i think um, but but there is this idea in like the recruiting hiring world of like experience inflation, which is where every year essentially just like the cost of living goes up, as we're all painfully aware mm. in the UK at the moment, the the amount yeah. of experience you need to get a job as a developer increases a little bit as well, and it's it's purely due to like supply and demand. You know the the there are more developers entering the industry every single year, lots of boot camps, lots of successful scrimba students. I don't mean to paint a picture whereby you can't get an entry-level job and it's super highly competitive out there because I, I see it every week on the Scrimba podcast. Like I see developers finding success in different verticals all the time, so, so don't feel deterred. But the reality is a lot of companies now feel justified in asking for two to three years experience because it's kind of like where the industry's at. And unfortunately, it's really just a convenient yet imperfect measure of a candidate because as it happens, if you have been coding for years, that's probably going to correlate with your ability, probably. Um, there's always exceptions, right? But I think it's fair to say that probably that will correlate uh, experience and ability or, or, or the time you spent doing it and experience. Um, and so employers use this, I think, as kind of a shortcut to, to eliminate obviously unqualified candidates. I mean, Cam, you were a recruiter for, for a while and like you probably, I'm curious if your experience reflects what I've heard and what I've seen but sometimes when you post a job ad, 
you know, you get hundreds of applications and like, honestly, loads of them are just random ass applications. Like they don't even know what they're applying for or they're like IT people and they're applying to programming jobs. Yeah, uh, unfortunately it's the case. And like, you do get a lot of like, low effort applications where someone's just been um basically spamming them out uh and you know they, they obviously haven't written anything about they they don't know what the company does and like i would never when i was doing it internally i would never require a job uh like a cover letter for a job or any, anything like that but so, what i would do is i'll just say like a couple of things <laughs> on the ats uh like give the candidate a couple of questions like why do you like company x and then it's literally maximum, I think the maximum was like 300 characters. And the amount of people that would just be like, your company is interesting to me. Like, come on, at least copy and paste the company name in. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, totally. So you just get a mountain of like, for a lot of junior jobs, it's like 85% completely irrelevant. Um, and, you know, you do get some great juniors. And then that's when it becomes really tough, uh, I find, because you really want to give everyone a shot. Um, and it is a very, it's the, easily the most competitive um sector of the market i was saying when i was on your show um that it's easily the most competitive and it's the only one where supply vastly outstrips uh demand um mm -hmm. and what would you say for, from your side you've obviously coached a lot of people um to getting jobs through uh working through scrimba what would you say they have in common uh when it comes to the what x factors do people have to get that first job do you mind if I quickly go back to the, the two to three years experience thing? Because I'm yeah, very of course, yeah. curious yeah. to get your perspective there. Because with regards to all those applications, like, does it seem rational then that recruiters would try and make their job a bit easier by increasing the threshold to entry a little bit? It's rational if they're willing to pay for someone with two to three years experience, but unfortunately, they're often not. Um, so... With, with those, what I'd say, what I'd say to you, if it says entry level and then it says two to three years experience, maybe it's maybe they are trying to do it as some kind of weird deterrent. I think it's terrible recruiting practice, uh, to, to be perfectly honest, and I'm willing to stand by that. Um, but if you apply anyway, you can almost think of job requirements as a wish list, including that one to two years experience. Obviously, don't be silly and apply for like um, the senior architect position with twenty years, where twenty years experience. That's probably much more likely. That is where it's a firm requirement. But just apply anyway, because a lot of the time I speak to juniors all the time, and I, I obviously won't name one here. But there's a couple of people on our Discord, uh, on the Code of Careers Discord, that are easily good enough. Um, to get their first job and they are much better than a lot of entry-level developers I've seen um, and yet they don't have the confidence to not just apply for stuff and treat the requirements as wish list they treat everything as exact so it's bad recruiting practice and the owner should be on the recruiter but mm -hmm. unfortunately it's the world we live in uh, so candidates like shouldn't be scared to if it says entry level you're an entry level developer apply for it and then you know if they ask for feedback at the end and they said you weren't experienced enough just say like well you shouldn't have said entry level then because the recruiter will get the message eventually and we've all got to be part yeah. of the change <laughs> i like that i like how you're holding recruiters to a higher standard there um and it's it, you know it's tricky because some companies say two to three years experience um and you make a very good point that like if you have two to three years experience you're probably weeks away from like not being a junior anymore at, yeah. at worst, right? And so they're really trying to get a developer on the cheap. That's a great point. Um, I do think sometimes uh, employees and companies use it as like an imperfect measure, uh, just hoping to increase the lower bar a little bit. But you're right, like that's not that's not fair. And like the owner should be on the recruiter to, to make it more approachable for uh, the, the right candidate. And, and therefore they won't miss out on some awesome candidates. I, I think no matter what, if you can um, 
even if a company has this kind of broken hiring practice, I think it is still possible to circumvent it and sort of demonstrate that you have the know-how and the potential, even if you don't meet that experience threshold. It's just unfortunate because you're going to have to work a little bit harder to like make that case if they don't ha- if they don't just have that objective number to, to measure by. And then just one last thing I'll throw into the mix, because I, I think this is an interesting idea that uh, Danny Thompson said to me on, on my podcast when I interviewed him. He was kind of making the point that like, entry level in an enterprise company where they have like L1, L2, L3, that kind of thing, Amazon, Google, and so on, like entry level could just be like you entering the company, right? And then starting your your sort of path. So I think obviously there's a bit of nuance there, but you should definitely be wary of, of like this fairly gray, if not dark practice around uh, trying to get developers on the cheap because that's not cool. Yeah, definitely. I think it's that's definitely worth people keeping in mind as well because um, job titles are different in every place. Like, my current job, even though I'm my responsibility is more senior than my last job, I think actually my official job title is technically like lower at my new place um, because my new place doesn't really hire. Um, well, until very recently, we didn't really hire uh, like new grads. So like oh, sure. the lowest level was someone with a couple of years experience. That's changed a bit now. Um, but yeah, it's definitely watch job titles because job titles, unfortunately, do mean different things, different places. And um, yeah, da- Danny's a cool guy. People should definitely follow him on Twitter and stuff like pretty inspirational, yeah. uh, inspirational guy. And like he uh, spreads a lot of like much needed positivity uh, around yeah. the dev ecosystem, uh, which is what I like. Always cheers me up when uh, when I see him um, tweet something. Uh, he's always positive. <laughs> The thing he's doing right now, which I have a lot of respect and admiration for, is he's on like a weight loss journey and he's posting on LinkedIn, which bear in mind, you know, LinkedIn was typically for like just purely uh, posts related to your specific role or whatever, like recruiting and stuff. He's posting videos of him like doing kickboxing. And and to be very honest, like he's not in like the absolute best shape right now. Like he, he admits it in the post. He's like, you know, I'm sweating, but... I can't wait to watch this video back in a few months and see how far I've come. And what I really admire is how he's doing this in in public. And I think Danny represents someone who I think, you know, started from uh, zero coding knowledge and became a successful developer and has sort of figured out that there's a pattern there and you can apply it to anything. Like if you think about coming through school or you think about growing up, like you almost don't realize just how powerful you are, how much you can teach yourself, how you can change your mindset. A lot of people grow up thinking they have a fixed mindset and you'll get, you get what you're given and that's it. But I think what's really cool about learning to code is that for many people, it's your first opportunity to really teach yourself something at a very high level. And once you do that, it gives you this incredible confidence boost. And I think Danny and me feel similar in this because once I taught myself how to code, I was like, oh, I can just apply this process to anything else in life. And it gives me this like toxic trait almost where I think I can learn anything now because, you know, I'll find a YouTube video or something. Or if it comes to losing weight, I apply a lot of the same mental principles I would have to to learning to code. It's exactly like I said about looking in the mirror every day. You need to zoom out a little bit to to measure your progress. And I, I just wanted to give Danny a shout out for that. Like, I think it's really cool what he's doing, but also emphasize to anybody who's a aspiring junior listening, that like, this is a very transformative process in terms of how you think and sort of, it will affect your life in more ways than just just your ability to code front-end websites. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that thinking you can do anything. I think in terms of like exercise as well in a similar way, um, I thought I could do anything in rugby training um, a few months ago and uh, tried to go in for a try-saving tackle 
uh, on our fastest winger when when I play loose head. And uh, so if people don't know, loose head is usually one of the slowest players on the team um, and try to chase down a fast player on the team and um, yeah, torn hamstring. Uh, So know your limits equally when it comes to stuff like that. But like coding, don't know your limits. Like go go and like uh, go go and enjoy yourself and build that confidence and build fun projects and just always keep it fun um, is, is always important as well. Just always keep coding fun. If you're learning yourself, um, then work on projects you personally enjoy on, you think you'll get value out of. It doesn't always have to be some like exact amazing enterprise application. Like, um, I don't know if you've watched Silicon Valley, but like, for example, oh. Pied Piper, the startup they make in Silicon Valley, you don't need to build a new Pied Piper where it's like, oh, a really cool compression algorithm. Just make, I don't know, make a fantasy football app or something like that if you love football. Um, or, you know, there, there's so many different fun things you can you can do for code and something your friends would like to see as well um, is always great. Like, show it to your friends and family. And um, if they're not interested, show everyone on Twitter because they will be. <laughs> sure, yeah, 100%. 100 Days of Code is a... It's a great way to get involved with that. Can I can I um, politely push back on your point about comparing rugby and, uh, and and learning to code? Because I think you make an excellent point with regards to, to rugby and like going in too hard and then you hurt yourself. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I doubt you can like enjoy rugby at the moment if your hamstring's recovering. <laughs> and like, yeah, you know, with, with coding, it's actually not that different because you know sometimes what happens is you're so excited. You have a chip on your shoulder, maybe. Um, you feel like you've got this time pressure against you, and that and that kind of makes you crank up the intensity. Uh, you you work beyond your limits, for example, uh, and this has a really negative consequence sometimes because it does lead to some form of burnout. Uh, burnout means different things to different people, but what I'm describing is like, okay, you went really intense Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but now Thursday and Friday you're tired and you're you're like not really getting anything done. As it happens, it's Friday today, so maybe this uh, example is pertinent. <laughs> but in any case, like if you just sustained yourself Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, cruising at like 70%, when you add up the sum of those days, you will actually have accomplished more and probably been a bit happier and fulfilled and satisfied in the process. And I think what happens when you get tired and you're on like a long-term goal is your mentality starts to slip a little bit. You start looking at the the sort of gap, like how much further you have to go, when really you should be looking at the gain, which is how far you've come. And then this leads you to feel a bit more demotivated. And then you, you know, your, your next week might not be so productive. Um, I, I say this a lot on the Scrimba podcast lately because I think it's such a powerful idea. But but the whole definition of intensity is that you can't sustain it because if you could do it every day or year, it would not be by definition intense. And and short term, like long term consistency beats short term intensity every single time. So I, I think there's a huge challenge teaching yourself how to code. Uh, not only sort of uh, avoiding things like tutorial hell, like we spoke about, not only circumventing these crazy requirements to to have two or three years experience to enter the field, but all the while you're having to like develop your own learning path. And you're also having to like manage your expectations and emotions. And the thing about university for, for as much as I bash it, essentially, like what you get is like a sense of camaraderie because you're all in the foxhole together and you, you can kind of compare yourself to others. And that can actually be useful in some ways because you see where your strengths and weaknesses are, but it also sets the expectation and the parameters of what you need to do. And the same can be said for testing, right? And exams and you know, uh, group projects and things like these are all great opportunities for you to see how you compare. But I think when you're by yourself teaching yourself how to code, you don't really have any of these reference points. And it's very easy for your mind to spin and spin. And, and sometimes it ends up being not not the most productive thing, actually. Um, and yeah, 
I'm not really here to like promote Scrimba by any means, but the thing that we do at Scrimba that's really good, I think, is we have the career path, which outlines the specific things you need to learn in what order. And as a result, you can remove a bit of this strain from yourself about deciding what to learn in what order, and you can apply that newfound energy to actually learning the concepts. And we also believe in like community. So we have like a huge Discord community, but it's not just like, I mean, so many companies have like a community, but it's just a shitty Slack channel actually. What we have is like very specific channels that allow you to meet other members. We host weekly events to bring everybody together. And we try and bring like a positive vibe to it because you know we realize if our objective is to make you a successful developer, we can't just give you courses. Like that's not enough actually. You need some of that like framework. You need some of that support as well to guarantee success. And so we're hitting it from a, a few different angles in that respect. Yeah, I, I was seriously impressed by the community. I, I, I'll tell you that. Like, uh, I did a. Um, uh, I think obviously you introduced me to to Gil, um, and I helped. Um, I, I did a little like uh, AMA kind of thing with yeah, with a talk, group yeah. of Scrimba students, which was really fun. And uh, they were all really ambitious, and a lot of them have popped into the Coder Career Discord to say hi as well. No and way. I really so like that, that about, about Scrimba. I, I think the community is so important and being able to like you said you're in the foxhole together camaraderie um it's exactly exactly what you need and it, yeah i think that's such a major selling point for what you guys work on i think i think that's really admirable awesome man i'm so glad you could get involved with that that that's honestly a, a big thing on the podcast as well is like um when we come interviewing like a successful student to sort of show you how someone a few steps ahead of you managed to do it and then the other week, I'm interviewing someone like yourself, Cam, who's like been a recruiter, been successfully in the industry, trying trying to get to the bottom of like um, what what you think a junior developer should do, so we can learn from your experience. Um, and so, yeah, like I think I think that's so important, and I'm really glad you could get involved. Yeah, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and yeah, we definitely fully endorse Scrimba um, on the Code of Career. We think it's a really good resource. <laughs> <Of course>. um, <laughs> I guess my my last question I had to you because I recognise I'm from taking up quite a lot of your day now, but um, I did I did want to get your opinion on actually what's become quite a hot button topic uh, in in the Code of Careers community, where a lot of us disagree with each other. Um, how important do you think a portfolio slash like personal website is for an aspiring web developer? And if it is important, how would you go about creating a good one that stands out? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. Um, it's so, it, you know, it's funny because um, on the on the Scrimba blog, uh, I, I often research like what are trending topics and, and how to build a portfolio is like one of the most popular things right now. Like everybody is searching it. Everybody's like watching videos and clicking uh, clicking links about it. And I, I do understand um, the, the reason you want to do it. The, the thing I'll say is that there are very successful developers who have a portfolio. There are very, very successful developers who do not have a portfolio. Like, I don't think by any means it's like a prerequisite or a necessity. I think it's like a tool or, or a weapon, a tool in your toolbox, a weapon in your arsenal, however you prefer to look at it. And it's something you can reach for judiciously if you think it's going to support you. What I would say is that as a new developer, you know, without a degree, without any chunky work experience on your resume, you might be looking for ways to stand out in the recruitment process and also give people who, will, who, who might or will interview you some context to latch onto so that they're not like spending half the call digging for like what makes you unique. You're kind of presenting to them all of your best selling points and, you know, your portfolio should really adapt the hierarchy where you make your value proposition to a company very clear from the top and then you support that with your projects because it is a project portfolio at the end of the day. 
I think a lot of developers get that wrong. I think a lot of people just see that everybody else is building a portfolio and that they should do it. And like, it's a checkbox exercise, like a list ticking exercise. Um, but if you don't have any projects to put on your portfolio, uh, then like you don't need a portfolio, right? And, and you know, it depends on your approach as well. I, I, I struggle a bit with portfolios personally in the sense that my, my approach to finding work and one of the approaches that I endorse the most is to, is to network and build relationships with people um, and, and sort of earn their trust through your, through your character and your work. And I also recognize that if there's a company I want to work for, I don't really want to go through the front door with everybody else with a piece of paper, AKA a resume. Um, I'd prefer to like start a conversation and learn about the company first and then tell them why I think my skills would be a good match for their mission and why I can support their team. Um, I believe in that a lot and the portfolio doesn't really help me in that respect for that kind of strategy. On the flip side, if you're like going through the front door and you're applying and doing easy apply on LinkedIn and all this kind of stuff, I don't really think that like anybody's going to see your portfolio anyway. Like maybe maybe if they're curious, like they'll click through to it. But the real the real thing that matters when you're applying for jobs is like your cover letter or your resume because they'll always read that before going through to your portfolio. I think like your portfolio is there to just support that if they if they want it and, and maybe give them something to talk about during the interview. What, what I'm getting at is like, you need a strategy and like a portfolio may or may not fit within your job searching strategy. Um, I, I, I regret that a lot of people treat it as like a box ticking exercise and they feel like it's something they have to do. Uh, you absolutely don't. The funny thing is like on the podcast, I've interviewed probably 40 to 50 junior developers who just got hired within months of me interviewing them. And I'm just guessing, but I, I think like, 20% had a portfolio and I'm not even sure if that portfolio made a big difference to their success. It's funny because a lot of students I've interviewed, they had ambitions to do a portfolio, but they didn't have enough projects to fill it out. Or, or maybe they got distracted halfway through, or maybe they just launched something that they weren't happy with. Like they have a .com domain, but it's just a very basic page that says, hi, my name is Alex. Hi, my name is Cam. I want to, you know, very simple. Like it's not even a portfolio. It's just a landing page. And they had an ambition to go back and improve it, but they got hired before that could happen. And all these things tell me that like, it's not an absolute necessity. Um, that said, I do think having a portfolio can be, can be great if it fits your strategy. And it's also really nice to have a little corner of the internet to yourself, namely a portfolio. And if you're learning new skills and new technologies, it's a great playground, right? To just go in and for example, uh, try out a new CSS animation or, or maybe uh, sort of rewrite the backend using the new exciting updates that just happened with Next.js. Um, but yeah, I think you just have to be judicious. I'm, I'm curious now because you said it was hotly debated. What's your take? So I, I lean towards it. I'm not like a zealot for it. And I'm actually that exact example you named. I had an absolutely dire um, personal website and I got hired before I could even improve on it. And right do you know what? I'm, I'm actually halfway through building a proper one using Astro um, the new web framework and mainly because I'm, I'm curious about how good Astro is. Um, and it, it's been one of those things that it's kind of been in the, it's been on the back burner for like a few weeks. So I come back to every now and again, I was going to knock a bit of work out on it this weekend actually, but yeah, I think I lean towards it being like, it can be a good idea. Like it's not absolutely essential. Um, Colin, interestingly enough, is more like thinks it's a very overrated thing. He probably more shares your opinion um, where, you know, obviously it's not harmful to create one, but there are much better things to create. Um, and I, I think it, I think it's interesting. Um, 
you know, you're not doing yourself a disservice if you make one. But yeah, it's absolutely not as essential as people make out um, make it out to be. And exactly your your evidence of uh, only around twenty percent of people actually having a proper portfolio Roughly, page yeah. um, that pretty much tells the story, right? Yeah, man. It's actually I'm kind of just looking at my monitor and smirking a bit because um, I made a video nine months ago on the Scrimba channel which is called how to build a junior developer portfolio that will get you hired. And it has like <laughs> 60K views. <laughs> like it's the most, the most viewed video. And I'm really, uh, I'm really quite authentic. And, you know, when I come on a podcast or something, I'm just myself, honestly. So I'm a bit concerned about looking like I'm insincere having made this video and, uh, you know, promoted portfolios in the past. Uh, but, but in that video, I'm not talking about whether you should have one or not. I'm just saying, if you want to make one, Here's, here are the things you have to do to make it really good and make sure you get hired. And it's a super fun video because I take like three portfolios of junior developers who got hired in the last few months and I break down their portfolio. And this was a really fun exercise because you know there's all these best practices around portfolios. Well, you know, in two or three cases, the, these developers just ignored those best practices, but they got hired anyway. So like, yeah. who's making up these best practices? Like, is you know, you just have to, as with many of these things, like you just have to be aware of what's available to you and be judicious. Like just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing to do. Um, what I would say you absolutely have to do, which is non-negotiable and frankly, and I'm, I'm a bit on the fence with regards to portfolios. Obviously, I'm not really putting my uh, flag in the ground here, but what I am absolutely uh, unwavering about is that you should have a resume at all times. Because yep. the last thing you want to do is to be in a situation where maybe an opportunity arises. Maybe this has happened, by the way, like if you're doing 100 days of code or you're learning in public um, or getting involved in community a little bit, like you said, Cam, somebody might reach out to you and say, hey, we're hiring juniors. The last thing you want to be doing in that scenario is like scrambling to, to assemble a resume. And likewise, even if you do easy apply, even if you take my approach and like network and try and get in through the side door, they're, they're almost always going to want to resume anyway, because when they sit with you at the interview table or on Zoom, they have your resume in front of you because it's like their guide to the conversation. Um, so, so this is absolutely non-negotiable in my view. Yeah, I mean, most most good ATSs actually won't really let you like use a candidate. And so an ATS is like recruitment software. Um, they won't even let you like use a candidate unless you have a CV or resume attached to them. So that's, yeah, um, definitely really important. I mean, little tip I found with that. Um, Google don't sponsor this podcast. Google, if you want to, absolutely feel free. Um, <laughs> I, I keep a, I keep a CV on on G Drive, and then just like every few weeks, I just like update the latest details to it in Google Docs. It syncs across the cloud. I even just do it on my phone sometimes. If I nice. worked on some particularly oh, cool project, I update that. Or you know, occasionally it will go back and delete something like uh, you know. For example, I've now deleted all my recruitment experience off my CV because it's irrelevant. Uh, it yes. wasn't at first, but now it is. Um, but you know, just, just go back, like, uh, create, read, update, delete. Where have I heard that before? Uh, oh, no. it's a cruddy, that's a cruddy thing to say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on today. Cause I think, um, our, uh, our time is, um, our time's, uh, almost up with the time slot and Earl Grey is meowing for his lunch outside. So I need to attend to that, but thank you so much for coming on the, um, coming on the show today, Alex. And if people want to hear more from you and from Scrimba, um, where can they find you uh, i'm on twitter uh, at book of code scrimmers on twitter as well but i would love it if you checked out our uh, youtube channel and podcast because that's where i'm putting a lot of my attention and care into creating content that will help new developers and it's probably natural then that you check out scrimmer and the career path if that's something that is uh, uh pertinent and relevant to what you're learning at the moment 
Brilliant. All those links are in the description for people to check out. I highly recommend. Thanks so much as well for the listeners for tuning in for another episode of The Code of Career. We are in your inbox every other Monday. Thank you so much and feel free to join the Discord under thecodecareer.com slash Discord. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks.